I am still convinced that Stoicism is by far the best practical philosophy ever, not just in the Western world, but across the globe. I think it beats the crap out of everything else in terms of utility and coherence. But that doesn't mean the modern Stoics don't have some work to do in order to try to figure out how to apply it to the 21st century outside of their own sphere. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Massimo Piliucci. Massimo is one of the key figures behind the renaissance of modern Stoicism. We discuss the meaning of Stoicism, Stoicism and politics, and end with a discussion of the proper attitude towards social media. This is an excellent conversation for hearing about how Stoicism can fit into a life, from helping us manage tragedy to thinking about politics or our relationship with Twitter. Here is a Stoic conversation with Massimo Piliucci. Today I'm speaking with Massimo Piliucci. Massimo is the professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. He's the author of How to Be a Stoic, The Quest for Character, and I believe authored or edited about 11 other books. He's one of the key figures in thinking about how to integrate ancient philosophy into our lives today. So we're very fortunate to have him back for another Stoic conversation. Thanks for joining. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with a broad question that's always worth revisiting. How do you explain Stoicism to people these days? You know, it's a more difficult question than one might think. But fundamentally, Stoicism is, of course, an ancient Greco-Roman philosophy that evolved between the 4th century BCE and the 3rd century of the modern, of the modern era. And it focuses on character. That is, the fundamental thing for a Stoic is that is virtue, is, which is a set of character traits. And therefore, the most important thing in life for a Stoic is to take care of your character, to be the best person you could possibly be. In fact, the word for virtue in Greek is arete, which really means excellence. So you want to be the most excellent human being that you can be. And what does that mean? It means two things fundamentally. One, trying to think and act as rationally as possible because we are rational animals. And two, try to think and act as pro-socially as possible, as cooperatively with other people as possible. Why? Because we are social animals. In fact, the Stoics often summarize the, their philosophy by saying that we should live in accordance with nature, by which they meant human nature. And human nature is exactly, according to the Stoics, at least it's exactly founded on what I just said, rationality and cooperation, social cooperation. Why do you think Stoicism has seen such a large resurgence over the past uh, two decades or so? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one can only speculate, at least I'm not aware of any, you know, sociological research on, on, on why Stoicism has become so popular. So it's, we, only, we can only guess. I think there are multiple reasons for it. First of all, it is never really gone away, even though the school itself, the Stoa, basically ceased to operate as an independent school in the second or third century. Stoic ideas permeated, permeated Christianity, which means that they were then carried on for 
the entire Middle Ages into the Renaissance. During the Renaissance, there was, in fact, a revived interest in Stoicism, something sometimes referred to as Neo-Stoicism. And, and then Stoic ideas, some of the Stoic ideas were, in fact, part and parcel of the Enlightenment. The founding fathers of the American Republic were influenced by a lot of the Stoic authors. For instance, most of them, like Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, they all had their personal copy of Epictetus' Enchiridion. Well, Stoicism has never really gone away. That's one way to, to look at it. Another one is that Stoicism is a philosophy for everyday life, but particularly for hard periods in your life, right? So if somebody once jokingly said that Stoicism is a philosophy for people who are on an airplane and the plane is going down. I don't think that's quite true. I think Stoicism is a philosophy for pretty much every phase of life, the good and the bad. But certainly it becomes particularly useful when people go through crisis. Now, the 20 and 21st century have been one crisis after another at mm -hmm. a global or, in, or international levels, right? So we had two world wars. We have lived for decades now under the threat of nuclear annihilation. We're now living under the threat of catastrophic climate change. We just we were just hit by a pandemic. I mean, you know, there's lots of reasons to be stressed out. And those were the same kind of very similar situations to uh, the Hellenistic period, which is the time Stoicism, you know, came about. And, you know, even at the time, so similar thing, I mean, the Hellenistic period is defined usually as the period between the death of Alexander the Great and therefore the collapse of the Macedonian Empire and the bat Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, where uh, Octavian, the future emperor, Augustus, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, thus beginning the Roman Empire. Now, in, during that period, major turmoil at a social political level, people's lives were changed overnight and people didn't know how to deal with it. So it makes perfect sense to me that there is a resurgence of stoicism under conditions that are not that dissimilar in terms of social upheaval and sort of stress as the ones under which stoicism evolved in the first place. But then there are also more 21st century or 20, late 20th century kind of reasons. For one thing, mm -hmm. the pivotal work of Pierre Hadot, who was a French right. scholar who put back on the map the whole idea of practical philosophy and philosophy as a way of life, which again, had been lingering in the background for a long time, but he, you know, he wrote three major books that eventually were translated in English and sort of spurred this new movement and used this new interest. And although Hadot was interested in all of the Greco-Roman philosophies. A lot of his emphasis was on Stoicism because Stoicism is a very, is a very practical one. And, you know, it, comes, it literally comes with exercises and practices. So I think that all of these factors together help explaining the resurgence of Stoicism. Hey, what brought you to Stoicism or ancient philosophy more broadly to begin with? A midlife crisis, which is what a lot of people go through. And in my case, it happened a number of years ago, and it was triggered by a few events that were individually not very unusual, like an unexpected divorce, for instance, or my father dying and all that. But they all happened in a span of like three months. And so I was kind of hit all of a sudden. You know, my life was going just fine up to that point. And then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. Mm -hmm. You know, one, two, three, three punches in a row. It's like, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing? And I asked myself that question, you know, how do I react to these situations? How do I handle it? 
in a good way. And my first instinct was to reach for what I thought was my philosophy of life, which is secular humanism. So st stepping back for a minute, I grew up Catholic in Rome, in Italy. And then I left the church when I was a teenager because it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I embraced, ever since, I embraced the philosophy known as secular humanism. Now, secular humanism is about a number of ideas that I still believe in. It's about use, using reason and science to navigate life. It's about human rights. That's great. But yeah. when you're hit by divorce and father dying, you know, human rights and science and reason are not particularly helpful, at least not in those generic terms that secular right. humanism casts them with. So, so I was left a little bit in a strange situation. In the meantime, in terms of my career, I had actually began my shift to philosophy. I, my original training, academic training, is in evolutionary biology. So I was a biologist for about 20 years. And so I had actually decided to go back to school and get a PhD in philosophy. So I thought, okay, well, there come, here must be useful, not just academically useful, but useful in practice. If I don't find the answer in philosophy, I don't know what, where I'm going to find it. And while I was looking, I started looking more or less systematically at a number of philosophies, beginning with Buddhism and continuing with a number of virtue ethical approaches within the Greco-Romans. So Epicureanism, Aristotelianism, stuff like that. But none of that was really clicking. Like, yeah, that sounds interesting, but not really quite making right. me jump up and paying attention, mm -hmm. right? And then one day I got a tweet that said, from the modern stoicism group, the one that I mentioned a minute ago, saying, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, the hell is Stoic Week? And why would you want to celebrate the Stoics? Because of course, at the time I thought of the Stoics, like most people do, as these kind of Spock-like individuals who live through life with a stiff upper lip and suppressing emotions, mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's like, why, why would anybody want to do that? But then I started looking into it because I immediately realized that, first of all, stoicism also is a kind of virtue ethics, so it's in the ballpark of what I was looking at already. But also, I remember, wait a minute, the Stoics, that includes Marcus Aurelius, and I, I actually read the meditations in, when I was in college. And the Stoics also includes Seneca, which I actually translated in high school when I was practicing Latin. But somehow I never actually put the two together. So I was curious. I joined up and uh, I did the one of the first Stoic weeks. And that year, the, the material was all based on Epictetus. And interestingly, I had never heard of Epictetus before. Even though I'd taken you know, graduate level courses in ancient philosophy, I never heard of Epictetus. It's like, right. how is that even possible, right? And it turns out to, to be one of the most influential philosophers of all time in the Western tradition. So it's like, how is it possible that this guy is not taught in graduate school or even at the undergraduate level? I got it's, a single lecture, a single lecture yeah, on Epictetus. Right. And you were lucky. You were lucky. Yeah, because, that's right. As I said, I never even heard the name. And the reason I think is because Epictetus is a practical philosopher. He's, he doesn't spend any time at all about logic or metaphysics or you know, epistemology or all that sort of stuff that philosophers, academic philosophers tend to be interested in. He just tells you how to live your life. And that's not the kind of thing you learn from philosophy departments these days. So, but Epictetus did strike me immediately as 
the right path. I mean, as soon as I started reading him, it resonated with me. I said, whoa, this guy really got it, got something interesting to say. And he's saying it in a way that I like. He's very clear. He's very accessible. You don't actually need a background in philosophy to understand what Epictetus is talking about. He also is he's also very frank. You know, he mm-hmm. uses a sense of humor that kind of borders on sarcasm, which again resonated with me. And and that's it. That once once I got into Epictetus, that was the beginning. Yeah, very good. How has your practice over time changed, or how have you, if at all, changed how you apply Stoicism in your day-to-day? Yeah, life? it has changed because so initially my practice was based mostly on one of Don Robertson's early books, the one about cognitive behavioral therapy and practical philosophy. He actually goes through some exercises there, you know, like the meditation on death or the view from above, you know, those kind of things. They're mostly based on Marcus Aurelius, in fact, as it turns out. But then when I got more into it, I wanted to develop a more systematic approach based on the ancient texts. And so with my friend, Greg Lopez, we sat down and wrote together this book called The Handbook for New Stoics that actually has 52 exercises grouped according to the three disciplines of Epictetus. So there's, there are some exercises that deal with desire and aversion, that is to with reorienting our priorities and our value system. Mm-hmm. Some exercises deal with the discipline of action, which has to do with how to actually act in the world toward other people. And then a third group of exercises has to do with the discipline of assent, which is about improving our judgment. Because according to Epictetus, our judgment is pretty much the only thing that really truly belongs to us. And so we may as well want to take care of it. So most of my practice has been around the three disciplines of Epictetus. And I change exercises depending on what I feel I need. Sometimes if I'm going through a period, for instance, where I feel irritated or I feel like I get angry about things, then I focus on exercises that are specifically about anger. When I find myself paying too much attention to what the Stoics call externals, so things like fame and recognition and money and stuff like that, then I shift to exercises that deal with sort of stuff. So so the practice has changed, but you know, not the fundamentals, but the specific kinds of exercises and the way to think about it has shifted a little bit. Do you think there's something that uh, you might highlight as something that people who are familiar with the philosophy of Stoicism, at least moderately familiar with, un- currently underrate or undervalue in the philosophy? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are some there's one negative thing about one deficiency, I think, of Stoicism that practitioners tend to underrate. And that is the mm-hmm. fact that Stoics are really not that concerned with political action. And that might surprise some people because typically when the topic of political action, you know, structural changes and stuff like that comes up, some of my colleagues even will bring up examples like the famous Stoic opposition, right? So the Stoic opposition was a number of philosophers and senators under the reigns of the emperors Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian, who stood up to the emperors because they thought that those emperors were tyrants. Some of them were sent into exile, including Epictetus himself, in fact, and including Epictetus's teacher, Musonius Rufus. Some of them were actually put to death. And Epictetus talks about some of these people in the discourses. So, you know, whenever the topic of Stoicism and politics come up, comes up, people tend to point in that direction. However, this, this scholarly literature is pretty clear, I think, that Stoicism per se does not actually have a political program of any sort. For the Stoics, 
the political system that we live under is a dispreferred or a preferred indifferent. That is, it's something that does not affect, of course, you, who you are as a person, because it doesn't affect your character. And therefore, it's not something that you take or live or leave, and it's something that actually allows you to exercise your virtue, right? It's just like poverty or wealth. If you're wealthy, yeah, that's okay for a stoic, but you know, nothing to be too excited about. The question is, how are you going to use that wealth? And if you're poor, for the stoic also, you're nothing to be you know, particularly exercised about. The question is not whether you're poor or not. The question is how you handle your poverty. Well, that is, of course, one of the major strengths of Stoicism, the fact that it puts a lot of responsibility on the individual and empowers the individual to deal with pretty much everything. You know, you can be a Stoic emperor like Marcus Aurelius and having to deal with things like rebellions and wars and floods of the Tiber River and pandemics. And at the opposite extreme, you can be a slave like Epictetus, who has essentially no, you know, no freedom of doing almost anything of his own. So that is the power of Stoicism. But it is also one of the limitations because if taken too much to, to an extreme, it kind of blames the victim, right? So it doesn't recognize that there are structural issues, that slavery is not just a mental thing, as Epictetus says, it's an actual thing. And it's not a right thing either. And therefore, we should be fighting against slavery, actively fighting against slavery, not just saying, well, you know, it is what it is. So I think that is one aspect of Stoicism that practitioners tend to underestimate or not be sort of sufficiently cognizant of. But one of my favorite stories is in a paper by David Sadley, who is one of the major scholars these days of Stoicism. He wrote a paper a few years ago on the ethics of tyrannicide, so killing tyrants. And mm -hmm. particularly on Brutus, who was, of course, the major conspirator against Julius Caesar. And sadly there, interestingly, presents a, recounts an anecdote, which is kind of telling. So at some point, Brutus and his friend Cassius had to figure out who to try to get into the conspiracy, right? I mean, they couldn't do it by themselves. Two people was not enough. They needed support by, from a larger number of senators. And then the question is, well, who are you going to approach and say, hey, would you like to be in a conspiracy to kill the tyrant, right? Because that could be very dangerous. That could be the kind of thing that can get you killed. Right. So what kind of criteria are you going to use in order to approach people? And Brutus came up with a number of, you know, of ideas, but one of which was, let's not ask the Stoics. So he excluded everybody that he knew that was a Stoic. And why did he do that? Because he thought that for a Stoic, Living under a tyranny is a dispreferred indifference. So even though the Stoics might in fact agree that Julius Caesar was a tyrant, certainly some of them did, Cato the Younger, for instance, obviously did, they might not be actually prone to you know, participate into, into a, an actual conspiracy because they would say, well, you know, that's just one more way in which I, I exercise my virtue. I think Brutus went a little too far because, for instance, the example of Cato makes clear that some Stoics did in fact take arms against Julius Caesar. I mean, he, he, you know, he actually led the Republican arm, army against Caesar and famously lost and then committed suicide. So, so Brutus might have been a little uncharitable to the Stoics, but I think the point is still valid. That is, Stoicism is great in terms of personal responsibility and, you know, and putting the emphasis on agency of the mm -hmm. individual. But when it comes to structural 
issues, there is a deficiency there. And a deficiency that we don't find in other Greco-Roman philosophers. For instance, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, all three of them, were very clearly interested in politics. And they, all of them wrote about different systems of government and what is good about it and what is not good about it. So far as we know, the Stoics didn't. The only exception is Zeno's Republic, which is a lost book by the right. founder of Stoicism. But, but apparently, it, that book wasn't that good. In fact, later Stoics were kind of embarrassed by it. And it was not a political process, uh, political you know, program anyway. It was really much more of a sort of a utopia that envis envisioned a society of sages that go around without, you know, without needing any laws or any structure because, you know, they're all rational and they all agree among each other and they all discuss things rationally. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. But that's not the real world. I'm sorry. That's not going to help. That's not going to help. So here's how I would put it, and you can push back or agree if you think this is correct or not. So I would say that stoicism is, of course, a virtue ethics. And one way to make sense of virtues is in terms of different roles. So Epictetus has this role ethics, which is sort of an action guiding principles. And one of those roles are being a citizen. What is it to be a good citizen for many people? And that is an important part of Stoicism. But what the ancient texts don't give us or don't give us that much detail on is the answer to that question, of course. Like what is a good citizen? And in some cases, it might be a more broadly conservative approach, maybe in the case of Brutus you mentioned. Uh, in other cases, Stoics saw being a good citizen as a matter of restoring the Republic and overthrowing the tyrant emperors. But there is no uh, apart from perhaps some anti-authoritarian tendencies, some egalitarian cosmopolitan tendencies, there certainly is no uh, fleshed out political philosophy or agenda that I think Stoics, all Stoics would agree to, which can be both a strength, I think, in the sense that it can bring people together who have different political leanings, but it's also a weakness if you're looking for some action guiding principles in the political sphere. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's always dangerous to say the Stoics didn't write about this or that because, as you know, we lost most of what the Stoics wrote anyway. So right. it's not like, you know, it, it's always a very dangerous proposition to say, oh, well, they never wrote about this. But at least in the extent literature, and we do have quite a bit. I mean, we have a significant amount of writing from Seneca, of course, especially we have half of Epictetus' discourses. We have the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. We have Musonius Rufus' lectures. And yeah, nothing there smells even remotely of sort of political, structural issues, right? And not only that, but I think the contrast there is with Cicero. So Cicero, who was very friendly toward the Stoics, he basically his ethics was, in fact, essentially Stoic. And yet, he was also critical of other parts of other aspects of Stoic philosophy. And Cicero wrote a number of books, on the other hand, they are explicitly political, right? So he wrote mm -hmm. The Republica, which was a response to Plato's Republic. He wrote the Legibus, which was a response to Plato on the laws. And he wrote on duties where he answers exactly the question you just posed. That is, what does it mean to be a good citizen, right? And he actually spells it out in, in quite a bit of details from the point of view of a virtue, of virtue ethic. Interestingly, he does say that on duty was inspired by Panaceus, who was a middle Stoic. And so perhaps we can see what a Stoic might have thought in terms of how to be a good citizen through Cicero, indirectly through Cicero's on duty. 
But the caveat there is that Panisius was a middle Stoic. So in other words, he was active between the early store, which was based in Athens, and the late store, which was based in Rome. But Panisius was also known for being an eclectic Stoic. He was, you know, out of the mainstream. He was, it was a little bit out there. It was an unusual Stoic, in a sense. I think you're correct that not having a political program, of course, makes Stoicism a broader tent than it might otherwise be. But at the same time, when people, some modern critics of Stoicism correctly ask the question, so what is the Stoic take on you know, environmental problems or diversity or misogyny or things like that? Eh, well, it's hard to come up with an answer because there is no Stoic answer, to, at least that, that we can know of, to those questions. And that is, I think, a deficiency. Now, that said, I am still convinced that Stoicism is by far the best practical philosophy ever not just in the Western world, but across the globe. I think it beats the crap out of everybody else, everything else in terms of utility and coherence and, you know, and all, all other things. But that doesn't mean the modern Stoics don't have some work to do in order to try to figure out how to apply it to the 21st century outside of their own sphere. Because you know, one of the problems with too much emphasis on individual agency is that then Stoics becomes... Stoicism becomes a little bit sort of a life hackery kind of thing, right? So here's, that's why it's so popular in, with big corporations and Silicon Valley and stuff like that, right? We, we should ask ourselves, why is it that Silicon Valley, for instance, is, interested, is so interested in teaching Stoicism to their employees? And one answer might be because that way they're basically telling their employees, tough it up. No matter what the external situations are, your virtue is up to you. So you can, you know, you can be fine, and that way they get away without, you know, increasing the minimum wage or allowing toilet breaks or something like that. So it's like, you know, that there is a there is an issue there, and we need to be careful of it. That's not to say that's not a reason to reject stoicism. It's just a reason to improve it. Yeah, that's right. Um... So, of course, I'm in the Bay Area, so I want to defend Silicon Valley to some extent sure. and say, uh, <laughs> give it a try. Uh, so, yeah, my impression is that the bulk of people who are interested in stoicism here tend to come at it from more of a bottoms up approach. They find someone like Ryan Holiday or yourself through the internet somehow, and that's how they pick it up. And there's not a concerted effort to preach stoicism to employees, if it if you will. There are some broader trends around what people sometimes call hustle porn or having this ethic of working extremely hard in order to get some right. business outcome, which has its cons. And you can certainly see if a company is shaped in a certain way by, by what their execs promote. And of course, if it's something like that, then that can have the effect you suggest. There is certainly what you're, what you're talking about is certainly true. I mean, there are a number of people in that area who find stoicism, as you say, bottom-up. But it's also true that there are a number of people who make a significant amount of money when they're hired by corporations to teach stoic-like sort of philosophies. And that's where I get a little bit worried that, you know, why exactly is the corporation doing that? I mean, it's a fraught kind of topic, right? On the one hand, you want businesses and governments to, you know, encourage their employees and their citizens to get into philosophies, philosophies of life, especially philosophies of life that are very useful and based on increased agency, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I'm also very skeptical of 
when the thing comes top down instead of bottom up and you know when it's the authority right. that sort of says oh this is a great idea guys why don't you do it so we'll see i mean it, it's still very young i mean the whole field is still very young so we'll see where it goes in the next few years or decades what i've started to see a little bit more of is companies not promoting stoicism so much but mindfulness or therapy to their employees so whenever anything particularly bad happens there'll often be some post or some minor speech about something bad happened we're sorry we have all these resources for you which right. uh, is not exactly the stoic approach to it and has a right. uh, bad uh, right. outcomes exactly. so instead of fixing whatever it is that went wrong here's the here's the therapist you know go there and fix yourself which is like eh, all right yeah so there yeah there's that well, one other thing i wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on in our previous chat is you spend some amount of time talking about political realism. And since we're broadly talking about politics, it might be interesting right. to say a little bit more about that. So could you say something about you know, what you take that term to mean and why you thought it was important to address in your book on character and leadership? Yeah, so as you know, I just wrote a book on, published a book on character and leadership, the quest for character. And there, one of the fundamental questions is, what does it mean to be a virtuous politician, right? And there have been typically two answers, two opposite answers and incompatible answers. And part of the project of the book was actually to emphasize the notion that there is a third way that has been proposed and that might be the most useful one. So on the one hand, you have Socrates. So Socrates is essentially all about virtue. So if you're not, you're not virtuous in the middle, don't get into politics. That is the message that he gave to his friend Alcibiades. That is also, and that's a very well-known story. So Alcibiades was a kind of a greater-than-life character who eventually made a mess out of both his life and Athenian politics. And he was also, however, a student and a friend of Socrates. And as a young man, he goes to Socrates and says, you know, do you think I should get into politics? And Socrates, after short conversations, says, don't do it. You just don't have what it takes not in terms of skills, but in terms of character. Gladys was a narcissist. He was self-centered. He was into you know, self-glorification, exactly the opposite of what Socrates thought a good politician should be. What is less known, and I explore a little bit in the book, is the story that Xenophon tells us about Socrates. So Xenophon was another student and friend of Socrates, and he wrote a number of dialogues about Socrates, the most famous one of which is Memorabilia, which incidentally is the book that inspired Zeno of Citium to study philosophy and eventually established Stoics as a new philosopher. Well, in the Memorabilia, we find several episodes where Socrates talks to a number of people and who want to be politicians and tells them, don't do it. And then talks to other people who don't want to be politicians and says, actually, you're the right person. You're the kind of person that should actually do it. So it, it turns out that this was a part of Socrates' mission in life to essentially advise people on the basis of their character about whether to get into public affairs or not. So that's one model. It's unless you're virtuous, don't be a politician. Now, during the Renaissance, famously, we have the articulation of the opposite model, and that is Machiavelli. So Machiavelli was a himself a politician. He was a diplomat in Florence during the Renaissance. And he saw how things actually worked. He saw like, you know, from the inside, remember the, that Socrates was never actually a politician himself. 
Machiavelli saw how the sausage was made and he was disgusted. It's like, whoa, this is really horrible. Everybody keeps talking about, you know, virtue and I'm virtue here and virtue there. But in fact, behind the curtains, they're going to do a lot of backstabbing and betraying and all sorts of unethical and unvirtuous things, including popes, right? So at the time, remember, we're talking about a time where it was not unusual for a pope to mount on a horse with a sword in hand and go and slaughter people. Like, so, okay. That's not exactly what we think of as the Christian thing to do. So, so Machiavelli's advice at the end in his famous book, The Prince, was to do exactly the opposite. He said, D forget about virtue. I mean, you might want to pretend officially that you have virtue, that you're virtuous because, you know, people like that kind of stuff. But in fact, you need to be as ruthless as possible. With the objective of creating a functional society, I mean, Machiavelli was not in, in favor of a tyrant for a tyrant's sake, right? He, he thought, you know, the ultimate goal was to build a, some kind of functional society. But he thought that a leader, a statesman, would be completely ineffective if he actually started acting on the basis of virtue. And so he was kind of the anti-Socrates, in a sense, right? And the term real politic or realistic politics refers to what Machiavelli was talking about. However, the problem is that real politic also has a lot of problems. Like, I mean, if you just think about some of the people that practice real politics in the 20th century, you get people from Stalin to Mao to Henry Kissinger, not exactly a gallery of people that I'd like to have dinner with. So it's like, okay, now we got these two models, the extreme virtuous model, Socrates, the extreme anti-virtuous model, Machiavelli. Is it possible to have some something in between that makes more sense? And I mean, the answer is yes. And I sketch it very quickly in the book, although I'm working on a new project specifically on this. And the answer came from Cicero, as I mentioned before, especially On Duties, the book that we talked about briefly a few minutes ago. In On Duties, Cicero takes the intermediate approach. He says, look, of course you want a politician to be virtuous. You want a person of character to be a politician or a statesman because otherwise all sorts of bad stuff is going to happen. Mm -hmm. However, that person also needs to realize that we're talking politics, not philosophy. Therefore, you need to be able to compromise. What virtue does is it allows you to keep in mind your overall goal, your distant you know, objective. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you do have to compromise. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything done, and you're probably going to get killed. And in fact, he wrote this beautiful little passage that I quote in the book. At one point, Cicero was really frustrated with Cato the Younger, a stoic senator, because Cato was an ally of Cicero in the Senate. They were both trying to preserve the Republic and trying to not let it slide into tyranny. Cato was also very much the Socratic, into the Socratic model. It's virtue at all costs. I'm never going to compromise no matter what. I'm going to die before compromise, which in fact is exactly what he did, what happened. And Cicero got frustrated with Cato because Cato really got in the way actually sometimes of making progress out of his stubbornness and of his sort of purity of, you know, the, the purity of intentions that has to match the purity of action. So at some point, Cicero writes to his lifelong friend Atticus, and he's frustrated. And he says, you know, about Cato, nobody loves him more than I do. But sometimes he talks and votes as if he were in Plato's Republic, not in the scum of Romulus. 
which is a wonderful turn of phrase, right? So it tells you that Cato thought that he was, you know, he acted as if it was in utopia, basically, Plato, you know, Plato's Republic, not realizing that in fact he found himself in the scum of Romulus being, of course, the legend that he founded of Rome. So you need to get dirty, you need to get into the mud mm-hmm. with good intentions and with virtuous out, you know, outcomes in mind, absolutely. But sometimes you do need to do a little dirty trick to get your stuff done here and there. And Cicero did. He, he tried very hard to stay the course in terms of general objective. But when he had to compromise, he had to compromise. At some point, he realized, for instance, that the only hope to counter Julius Caesar was to ally himself with Pompey the Great. And Pompey was not a character that was much better than Caesar. He was like the last set of two evils, right? But at that point, he had no choice. You know, Caesar realized that like, well, it's either this or we're just going to give up. And giving up is not an option. So for now, we are going to go and swallow our pride and ally ourselves with people who we find unsavory otherwise. And then later on, when things hopefully are going to be better, we'll try to do, we'll try to improve the situation. So I think that is a good model. So the virtuous compromiser, I would call it, is probably a good model for a statesman. You, you don't want somebody pure. I'm, this actually has application to modern politics, if you think about it. I mean, it doesn't, it's not much of a stretch. So I consider, my, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I consider myself a progressive liberal, politically speaking. So definitely not a conservative, not a libertarian, you know, not, none of that sort of stuff. Nevertheless, I get upset with some of my own friends and colleagues who are on the same side of the political spectrum because sometimes they take positions that are so pure and so intransigent that they undermine themselves. I mean, former President Obama referred to this as liberals shooting themselves in a circular firing squad, right? So instead of shooting at the enemy, you got to shoot at each other. And that's not, that doesn't seem like a good thing to do. And Cicero would have looked at us and say, what the hell are you guys doing? Should be, you know, making common front against the enemy not and trying to make progress by compromising sometimes because that's just the way the world works. It's not that you, you can try to ignore it, but it's not going to go away. And that actually is a very stoic, if you think about it, it's a very stoic lesson, right? I mean, the stoics are all about taking the world as it is. Now, not in an imaginary world that you would like to be. It's like you need to deal with the situation as it actually is on the ground, not as you would want it to be. That's right. There's a reading of the late Republic where what Cato does is upholds his virtue, but by doing so, pushes all the vicious people into one corner because they can't work with him right. anymore, which, exactly. which shortens the lifespan, whatever lifespan the Republic had. Right. That's right. Exactly. How do you think, if you wanted to defend the Cato-like position, one might ask, well, where do the compromises stop? Is this just a political matter? Is this something we need to start thinking about in our personal lives as well, making compromises in our relationships, whether they're with family members, friends, and not just compromises on the sort of selfish sense, right. but right. our principles on we think what, what really matters. Yeah, that's a great question. And Epictetus actually gives you an answer very clearly. In the discourses, there is a bit where he talks about what you referred to early on as role ethics, right? And so Epictetus says that we have different roles in life. The most important one that we all share in common is role as a human being, right? As a member of the human cosmopolis. And then there are roles that fate gave us, 
right? So you are somebody's son. That's it's not something you chose. It's, you know, it's just happened. And then there are roles. There's a third group of roles. Those are the ones that we choose given our circumstances, right? So I chose, for instance, to be academic professor and stuff like that. And within my a certain set of circumstances that worked out. Now, Epictetus says you need to work compromises between these three roles. You always want to keep in mind that the most important one is the one of, as a human being, the role of a human being, which means you don't want to do, if possible, anything that undermines a human cosmopolis, right? Anything yeah. that hurts other people, essentially, or that puts other people at a disadvantage. But within that general framework, it's up to you to compromise. And he says, you know, you are the only one that can make that decision of where to stop or where to draw the line. Just draw it as high as possible, right? So just, he says, he has this beautiful turn of phrase where he says, you know, at some point we all have to sell our, our will, just don't sell it cheap, right? So raise the bar as much as possible. He gives, however, an interesting example, a practical example. He talks about two slaves, both of whom were asked by their master, were ordered by their master to hold the chamber pot, basically, while he was doing his things, his nature called, right? And that's disgusting, of course. You know, nobody, no human being wants to hold the chamber pot to another one. And so one slave says, no, I'm not going to do it. You know, I'll face the consequences, whatever they're going to be, whether I'm going to be beat by my, you know, beaten by my master or even killed. And the other slave says, you know, this is disgusting. I recognize this is, you know, below the dignity of a human being. But on the other hand, my family is important. My life is still worth it. I'm not going to challenge. And interestingly, Epictetus doesn't criticize either one of those slaves, nor does he praise either one of those slaves. He just says they, they made different decisions under the same circumstances because they were different people and they valued different things. And his advice is simply to, that, that nobody can tell you where to draw that line. You have to come up with that, with that decision. Just make sure that you don't rationalize things so that you cut yourself too much slack and so you're going to do you're not going to make an effort, so long as you're making the best effort. Now, in terms of po politics, as you were saying a minute ago, I'm sure each one of us can draw the line somewhere. There will be some things that we're not going to compromise about. But what I, where I draw the line might be different from where you draw the line. I might be willing to compromise on things that you're not willing to compromise or vice versa. And of course, if we're asked by friends or relatives or constituents or, you know, voters or whatever, well, why are you drawing the line there? Presumably we'll have some arguments. We'll have some reasons why we're doing that. So it's not that there is going to be a universal answer to it. But at the same time, we need to be aware of the notion that never to compromise because otherwise, once you begin to compromise, you know, where do you stop? That's actually a slippery slope argument, right? So it's a logically fallacious. Just because it's a, there's a continuum, that doesn't mean I cannot stop at some point. In fact, we all do it all the time in day-to-day -day life. I mean, there is, we're faced with, always with complex situations along a continuum of possible outcomes. And then at some point, we say, no, here and no more. And we need to just make sure, according to Epictetus, that we draw the line in a place that is reasonable and defensible and, of course, especially virtuous. Right. You make the choice, then you stick with it. He advises that someone, if you decide to hold the chamber pot, you know, don't be thinking to yourself, you know, why did I do this? Simply 
right. make the decision and stick with it. Yep, that's right. Do you think more people should leave social media platforms like Twitter? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I, I left Twitter some time ago. I also left Facebook for, for a long while, for about five months. Now I'm back on a moderate fashion simply because many of my friends and family were screaming bloody hell that day that I wasn't, that I wasn't there. But yes, and there is, it's not just my opinion, there is an increasing amount of research that shows that social media overall is a negative technology. Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist at NYU at New York University, is actually working on a book apparently on this thing. He published an interesting article in the Atlantic magazine a few months ago, arguing that social media is far worse than we normally acknowledge. And, you know, for a long time, I thought to myself, well, it's a technology, so it's neutral. It's not bad or good in, you know, per se, intrinsically, it's just what people do with it, right? So, but the fact is, there is increasing evidence that's just not the case. There is a book that came out very recently entitled exactly, Technology is Not Neutral, where the author recognizes that for all sorts of technologies, not just social media, Technologies are cannot be neutral because they're designed by human beings, and human beings have agendas and have you know and pursue certain objectives rather than others. So, to give you just a very simple example, you may remember a time not long ago where Facebook only had one like button. There were no, there wasn't a series of possible options that you had. There was only like or nothing, right? And then Facebook engineers discovered the infamous angry button. They discovered that if they put up the ability, the possibility of an angry response, people will start posting a lot more things that would make people angry. And those people would respond by pushing the angry button constantly, like 10 times more than the like button. And of course, what does that do? That drives traffic to the site and therefore advertisements, and therefore user information, which are the two sources of revenue on which Facebook is based, right? So the engineers at Facebook discovered this thing, and what did they do? They immediately incorporated the angry button in the, into the options available to the public, right, to the users. Now, you can still say, yeah, but it's still up to me whether to push the button or not. Yeah, true. But that's like saying to a drug addict, you know, hey, here's some heroin, it's up to you whether you want it or not. <laughs> like, I'm just putting it here. That's a neutral thing. It's not doing anything, right? Well, that's very disingenuous. It's obviously doing something. It is obviously, you know, these technologies are designed to manipulate people. And they're very effective at it. They're based on research in social psychology on how to manipulate people. So I think that overall, they have had so far a really bad effect. I don't know whether it can be improved in the long, the situation can be improved in the long run. There typically are two ways to improve these kind of things. One is regulation. That's the approach, for instance, that especially the European Union is, is pursuing at the moment. For instance, they just slapped Facebook with a 50 million euro fine. I think that's the right amount for precisely engaging in practices that are considered you know, not fair, not market fair. So that's one way to do it. You know, you want, you, you can have more regula regulatory agencies that essentially limit what these platforms can do. The other one is to go the opposite, essentially. So to go decentralized, right? So there are some alternatives to Facebook and Twitter that are based on an idea of decentralization. So there is no central company that controls anything. It's a bunch of independent servers that 
that work essentially semi-autonomously. And that may or may not work. I don't know. I tried a couple of these platforms. The problem right now is that nobody's there. You know, they're not very popular. And so, sure, in theory, they, they might work. But in fact, at the moment, the advantage, the market advantage that Twitter and especially Facebook have is just too great to, you know, I tried a couple of times, you know, two or three years ago, in fact, before the pandemic, I tried to convince some of my followers and relatives and friends to move to another platform. And you know, like a few of them did. And then you start to you find yourself talking to nobody. So that kind of defeats the purpose. Right, right. They certainly change the reward structure of our environment, yes. these social media platforms. Correct. Uh, it was striking to me that last week I had my best performing tweet of all time, and it was simply dunking on Jordan Peterson. So of course yeah. that incentivizes right. dunking on people, which is what you see in the platform. Yes. I discovered some time ago that you know I used to have a reasonable number of followers on, on, on Twitter. And I discovered by chance initially, but then I did it, you know, I'm a scientist, so I did experiments right, right. over time to see whether this was actually a repeatable effect or not. And I figured that every time I would criticize libertarianism, particularly in Rand, Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris, my tweets will spike like orders of magnitudes, right? It would be 10 times, 20 times, 30 times the normal, the normal response. It's like, okay, but that's easy. That... But what does that do, however, right? So that's the problem, you know. So so you're now in you're now being triggering a lot of people, angry people, to respond, which of course triggers the counter response from my followers because they get angry. And, like, and then at the end of the day, what have we done? We've simply creating a lot of anger. We certainly not understood each other any one one iota more than we did before. And so I moved away from that. So now I have a you know group on Facebook that I manage that is devoted to practical Greco-Roman philosophy, but it's a private group. So it's small. It's, you know, you cannot look at what we publish from the outside. You have to join. And the conversations are much better. The quality of the conversation is much better. But of course, the number of people is much smaller. That's mm. fine. That's a, yeah. That to me is a more than acceptable trade-off. Yeah, that's right. The Epicureans were onto something with the walled gardens. That's right. Like, exactly. That's right. <laughs> the Epicureans were onto something on, on that one. Well, last question. There's always so much to read. So a question that we get quite often is, you know, how do you think about choosing what to read next? Do you have any principles or tips on, you know, if someone's curious about stoicism, what's the next, what next step? That is an excellent question. I think th th there are a couple of things that I do. First of all, I don't listen to random opinions about what to read. So plenty of people write, believe it or not, plenty of people write to me, you know, they email me or they message me or something and say, hey, you should read this. Like, seriously, who are you? I mean, you may be right, but I don't know. You know, reading a book, it's an investment of time. So I'm not just going to follow random suggestions. So I'm actually going back to the idea of gatekeeping. I read book reviews by people who I trust, right? So I read book reviews in the New York Times or the New Yorker or, you know, other outlets that I know, or by people who I trust because I know from experience that they have had, you know, that they've come up with good suggestions. So that's one, one way to do it. The other criterion is actually found in Seneca. There's a letter where, that Seneca wrote to his friend Lucilius where he says, don't read a lot of different authors. It's a waste of time. You're going to just spread yourself thin and you're never going to come up with anything. Choose a smaller number of authors and read them over 
and over. And because you want to meditate on your readings, not just read it for the hell of it. You know, one of the things that annoys me is, for instance, you might notice that I don't have a lot of books in my library because I live in Brooklyn. And so it's the space is limited. What I do have is a large library on, you know, electronic, of electronic books. But one thing that annoys me of electronic books platforms is that they make even that into a competitive game, right? So you can look up statistics. Oh, you're on a streak. You've been reading for 80 days straight. Oh, you've been reading, you know, for X numbers of hours. You're, you're number 10 among your peers. Who cares? This is not a competition. This is not a, it's not a thing that, that one should be stressed about. You should be reading for pleasure and for learning, not because it's a competition with other people. So I would say these two things. On the one hand, find a small number of outlets or people who you think give consistently good suggestions about what to read and take a look. And second, don't read just all over the place. Try to focus on things that are really interesting to you and really important to you. I guess there is a third one, which is read mindfully, not as a you know as a competi- as if it were a competition just read by paying attention take notes i take notes every time you know every time that i read a book it's just full of notes and highlights and stuff like that because otherwise you don't you just like it goes through and then it goes right. on the other side and you just lose it and that's it all good tips is there anything else you'd like to share or add actually one more thing about books now just occurred to me and that is I learned a few years ago that it's okay to start a book and not finish it. See, when I was young, I was kind of obsessed with, oh, I, once I start, I got to finish it. And of course, what that means is that there's a lot, of, you're going to end up reading a lot of crap <laughs> because you realize that a book may have been, you know, interesting or superficially or initially. And then you go into like, you know, 50 pages and say, yeah, this is not going anywhere. Now I am okay. I'm at peace with closing a book and say, this isn't worth going all the way through. It's okay. I'll set it aside. Maybe I'll come back to it later. Maybe not. I'm fine with that. So have the courage and the peace of mind of not finishing a book if you don't think it's interesting. Yep. I agree with that 100%. Well, anything else you want to say or, or add or any pointers to your work? No, I think that's that's good. If people want to find my work, they can go to massimopigliucci.org. And there you'll find links to essays, books, podcasts, videos, you name it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on again. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.